Programming is supported by Topline Construction Firm, your local women-owned roofing contractor based out of Shoreview, Minnesota. Roof replacement, both retail and insurance work. More information at toplineconstructionfirm.com. You're listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. If you want to listen to us in real time, you can stream our show Monday through Thursday at 9 a.m. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover. It's a show about who we are in tumultuous times. Here in the Midwest, we're at the epicenter of electoral unpredictability. Out of 100 counties that flipped deep blue to Republican red in 2016, 50, give or take a few, are here in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Michigan, and Illinois. This show is about figuring out how that happened and what happens next. Today, what we get wrong about rural America and why it matters. Here's some context. Rural America is more politically diverse, more educated, and more economically optimistic than many of us believe. We'll talk about research on a rural brain gain, evidence that more Americans of color are choosing to put down roots in rural areas, and a national survey about the liberals, moderates, and conservatives living in the rural Midwest. And we are going to talk with rural Midwestern voters and business owners of color, as we do I want to hear from you. If you're living in more rural parts of the Midwest, Minnesota, Wisconsin, listening to us in Iowa, streaming us in Michigan or Illinois, what's the most misunderstood about who you are? Especially if you're under the age of 40, what do we miss about your experience? And if you are a Midwestern city dweller, come on, confess You probably have some images about rural America that need testing. So I want to hear from you. If you live in smaller towns, smaller cities in the rural Midwest, and I want to hear about what many of us get wrong about you and your life experience. And then for those of us who live in the city, I'd like you to confess a little bit here to some stereotypes we have about rural America. It's dying. It's all white. It's all conservative. We're going to puncture some of those stereotypes, and I'd love to hear from you this morning. 651-227-6000-800-242-2828 on Twitter at Kerry, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Ben Winchester is with us this morning. He's a rural sociologist at the University of Minnesota Extension, and he's with me in the studio And a lot of what we're talking about rests on your research, Ben, so I'm really glad you could be here with us. Welcome. Thank you. Good to have you here. I want to understand why rural America has been taking it on the chin for so long. How did the the narrative, the story that we tell about rural America get fairly distorted? What happened? Right. I I think we've gone through significant changes. And uh, along with the rest of the world, we have gone through these changes. But uh, many times, these changes are more apparent in our small towns. So, you know, we went through the mechanization of agriculture in the early 1900s that reduced the number of farm workers that we needed on our farmsteads by, you know, 20 to 60 percent in some places. So we started seeing out-migration of people away from our rural communities in the early 1900s. 
1900s. And this was kind of followed up fairly quickly by, you know, this globalization that impacted our main street. So we would close hardware stores. We'd close grocery stores, apothecaries. You know, we couldn't have four gas stations in town anymore. Now we're down to one. And uh, this kind of affects your identity. You know, you have to drive up and down the street every day in our small town. And you see where we used to have a bank there. We used to have a, a school there. I mean, many folks here, I'm sure, remember the consolidation of the school districts of the 80s and 90s, which again, now one town, you know, you lost your high school, but you had the elementary and now the next town had the elementary over. And or maybe sometimes in some cases, everybody lost their school and you built one out in the countryside. So we've had these kind of demarcation events that lead to us um, believing that we're in decline. And really, uh, I just like to remind folks that every time you hear of a hardware store closing in maybe Clontarf, Minnesota, there's one that closed in Minneapolis, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, nobody is immune from globalization. So even as many of us have seen changes in whatever neighborhood and community we live in, whether that's in the city or in rural America, somehow the story, the stereotyping has stuck that this is an endless cycle in rural America and there's really no way out because, I, I don't know, I think we hear about demographic changes of people moving to the city. So right. there's this perception that not only is this change happening, but Americans are abandoning these towns because there's nothing nothing to be there for. Right. And that the the lucky few escape, that you're lucky if you're able to That's get out, right. essentially. That's how um, it's been viewed. Right. And, you know, we, we talk about this quite a bit, and I, I use a term called total population infatuation. We're infatuated with total <laughs> numbers. Do we want our population to go up? You know, yes, we do, because then we're a winner. <laughs> uh-huh. But if we remain stable, we're considered stagnant, you know. Um, but in reality, the number of households in our rural communities has stayed relatively stable. Um, what's gone down, and which what, what really drives population decline, is average household size. So, you know, in 1940, the average household size was 3.6. Today, it's down to 2.6. Well, if you've only got 100 homes in your town, you know, your population just went down by 30% with you doing nothing except Mm -hmm. existing in the modern world. So essentially using total population as an indicator does a disservice. At the same time, um, you know, we've had a, a smaller proportion of Americans that live in our rural places. So, you know, today we've got 20% nationally and here in Minnesota of people live in our small town and rural places, and 80% in our urban places. Well, um, at the same time, some of our urban places have uh, grown wider, and they've you know captured many of our formerly rural places. Got it. So, you know, we typically talk, I mean, it was more common years ago to talk about the seven-county metro. Well, now look at how many counties are, you know, consumed within the MSP region. There's 12 to 14. You might, might go up to Stearns County in St. Cloud at some point. So it's not that urban areas have grown taller. They've grown wider, and in many ways, I, I think it's roughly 20 percent of counties in this country have been reclassified from rural to Interesting. urban. Wow. So this yeah. ultimately leads to a decline, apparent decline in the rural population when it's a reclassification issue. Let me grab a call here from Susie in Northfield, Minnesota. Hi, Susie. Glad you called. Hey, Susie, are you there? Oh, we might have missed. Susie, can I can hear you, sort of. Can you? Good. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yep. Go ahead. I sure can. Tell me yeah, what... I'm a city... Ca- yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I'm a city official in Northfield, Minnesota, and just I've moved here from New York 25 years ago, and I've been shocked at the false binary of urban and rural in Minnesota. Um, my small town of Northfield, small town, we like to think of it that way, is a right on the border of the seven-county metro, and there were very few metrics to show us the, the functional relationship of our city with our urban, excuse me, our rural. Economy. We're mm-hmm. surrounded by the richest, beautiful ag land in the world, 
And there was nothing, there's no way to show the impact of that rich economy on my city. Um, so my comment is that there's a false separation of urban and rural in the Minnesota imaginary. Maybe that's part of our national heritage that has to be changed to understand how interrelated we are, particularly as we enter a, uh, a, a century of, uh, of um, which places even urgent more attention onto land use. Susie, I want to ask you one question, because one of the things that we're going to talk about, and we're going to hear from some uh, business owners of color from rural America, is there a perception that Northfield is a community full of kind of family-owned businesses, and there is not a lot of economic opportunity if you want to open a business? As a city official, I imagine you think about this a lot. But you're blending two things there. You said something about people of color and then starting a business. I think that the truth is in the in the, the Northfield economy is doing very well with regard to small businesses and keeping them there. And one of the most exciting sectors of my economic growth, my economic growth, is our attention to small scale, and, and I'm hoping we'll move more into larger scale, economic relationships with the agricultural concerns that immediately surround my city. They're not in the city limits, so they're technically not part of what I do, mm-hmm. but they impact what we do as a city. They keep us vibrant. They support my downtown, which is booming. Um, so, no, I, there's perceptions of all kinds from the past, but Northfield's doing great and, ought to, and really is a model for, in many respects, for uh, this interrelationship that needs to be articulated and, in, and encouraged uh, to keep our small cities vibrant and to do that by paying attention to the rural agricultural economy, which, okay. which is inseparable. Really good to have your call. And there's a lot of nuance there that, uh, that I want to pull apart. Ben, I know your research shows that, and, and this was surprising to me, that an important part of the rural county growth is college-educated uh, Americans coming back into these communities and they're bringing their skills and their knowledge and their ambitions to start businesses with them. This is surprising to me, too. They're in their 30s and 40s and sometimes in their 50s. I think we also have this narrative that that's where you go to retire after you're done with your career or you don't get a higher education and so you're you're kind of stuck. Right. Your research says the opposite. Right. I, you know, we really started building this base of research on the brain drain narrative, which mm, is, you right. know, we worry a lot about our high school kids. When they graduate, right. they leave because they don't either see opportunity or know that opportunity exists in their small towns. Um, but what we did find, you know, demographically, we found easily, yes, you do lose your high school kids. 40 to 60, 70 percent of your high school kids are going to graduate and leave. Uh, but ultimately, what we found is People in their 30s, 40s, and 50s are moving back to just about every rural county, not just in Minnesota, but in the country. And uh, this, when we first started looking at this in the um, you know, early 2000s, we we were told, "Well, this is brand new." And I look back on the data, I was like, "Well, actually, this has been happening since the 70s." You know, is that right? But this narrative is so huh. negative. You know, even I mean, my colleagues, I, I'm in an industry. I'm a rural sociologist. We got a lot of folks who talk about the brain drain and about the decline of agriculture and the consolidation of industry and, and changes in healthcare. And you know, it, it's really it's really the framework used to describe change and and my point here is in almost all the research is that 
the narrative is so negative you think there are no good things happening. And when ultimately there are all of these good things happening, and I'm going to start by looking at the people that are actually choosing to move into our small towns. Mm-hmm. And what we had found when we had done interviews and focus groups, and we, we were continuing that today, we just uh, completed a survey of, of newcomers, people who had moved in the past five years, uh, to in 20 of Minnesota's 87 rural counties. Mm-hmm. So we are uh, we are gathering more data on this, but we, we found that people moved to our small towns and rural places for three t- good reasons. Uh, the number one was a slower pace of life. Um, people wanted kind of life on their time. They wanted to get away from a commute. Um, number two was safety and security, and that was especially high with people with children. And the third top reason was the low cost of housing. So we, we start to see this really uh, vibrant landscape where people are choosing to move in, and many times the number of people moving in allows your population to remain stable because, again, you're losing high school kids, so you're minus the kids and you're bringing in people. And uh, not everybody is moving in with children. Uh, just We found just half of the newcomer households had kids. Uh, so with newcomer households, um, they're choosing to move to our small towns for you know what we are and what we will be not what may have been my guess is that you spotted this col- column by new york times columnist paul krugman last march because it goes right at the heart of of what you're saying here he writes getting real about rural america and here's part of what it said not long ago we used to think of social collapse as an inner city problem nowadays phenomena like the prevalence of jobless men in their prime working years or worse yet, the surge of deaths in despair by drugs, alcohol, or suicide are concentrated in declining rural areas. What there, there may be some evidence of places in America where this is true. What does he get wrong about it? Right. Well, well I just I don't think he's wrong. I just I just think it's there's more to the story. You know, we there's more to write about our small towns than what, just our it's problems. It's like one right. dimension. Yes, you can find right. some rural counties in America where this is indeed occurring. Oh, for sure. You, there are lots of places that struggle uh, with with drug abuse, with homelessness, which looks very different in a rural environment. Um, with, with just you know trying to keep your main street alive. I mean, we've got we've got struggles, uh, but everybody has struggles. And, you know, kind of our point is there are a lot of things you can work on. I mean, if all you do is paint yourself as a struggle, then why would people want to move to your town, right? Why why, why was this going to be a good place to live and raise your kids? These are still places that people want to live in. These are places that have, you know, diversified themselves. Our rural communities are more diverse than ever before, socially, economically, uh, demographically. And we, we tend not to see it, though, because, you know, we still have these stereotypes that you know everybody in town mm, yeah. when you don't. Yeah. You know, everybody locks their doors. Some, or nobody locks their doors, right? Well, people actually do. Um, so we, we've got these stereotypes, I think, that uh, lead us to not see some of these changes that have occurred, especially when we're living there. We reached out to a couple of business owners of color in Iowa, and we heard from Juan Santiago. He used this program in Iowa called the Targeted Small Business Program, and he started a sign business in Tifton, Iowa. Now, he may be an indication that this community is more diverse than I think people outside of it or on the coast would ever imagine. He talked about the program and the relationships that he had established in Tifton. He said, you run into some obstacles. It's not as easy as it sounds, but listen to his experience. I personally don't think that, um, at least in my community, the color of my skin or, or even my last name is an issue. Um, I think uh, actually the fact that, and I I don't want to say it in in a braggadocious manner, but I'm known in the community. 
Um, I've been in law enforcement here for close to 20 years, um, so I was already known. One of my biggest challenges when I first started the business, I like going to the networking, the different networking opportunities. And uh, one of the things that I've noticed, in, at least in my community, um, with the Chamber of Commerce, um, there are very, very few um, minority-owned businesses. Um, I've been to uh, several meetings, and I've always been the only minority. And I know in my community, there's a lot of minority-owned businesses. Um, I don't know how to change that um, because I just don't feel that there's an, there isn't I feel there isn't enough effort to try to include minority-owned businesses and organizations, professional uh, uh, businesses like organizations like that. So, Ben, that sounds to me like a warning and an opportunity for some of the rural towns and cities that we're talking about. Notice who's interested in starting a business and who's interested in moving in. And provide some opportunities there. Right. Is that happening? Yeah. I, I mean, number one, we do know that a majority of new business growth is is from the immigrant communities across the state and rural communities. But we also know that um, when we, we've got uh, – Robert Putnam, he wrote a lot of yes. work Bowling on social alone, capital, right? right? Yeah, but he, alone, he had yeah. an article too called uh, – that he talked about rapidly diversifying communities and what he had found that is that in rapidly diversifying communities, not only do people tend to not trust you know, groups that look different than them, but the mm-hmm. people within that group tend not to trust each other. So this leads to even more of a struggle, especially during uh, the initial periods of diversification, where our communities may struggle with, uh, you know, trying to develop a welcoming atmosphere, mm-hmm. a trusting atmosphere, because those, I mean, really level of trust is the number one predictor of, you know, being able to deal with change in this world is how do people trust one another in that community? And we call that social capital. So it's how do we build social capital between people? And, and within and between groups in our in these new communities, but part of this is just recognizing that um, these people are contributing to the new way of life in rural. That you know there has been no kind of stagnant view of what rural should be. This has been an ever changing dynamic. I mean, we went through it you know historically years ago, and you know we had Germans moving into town, and now the Lutherans are moving into town. Well, now we've got we've got a new wave of change. Um, we we did have a long period of time where we didn't have a lot of change in our rural communities here, and especially here in Minnesota, we aren't the most most diverse state in the in the uh, country, so we are um, we are struggling with some of the things that many other states have dealt with already. Mm-hmm. But we've got lessons that we learn and we bring forward, especially through the work at University of Minnesota Extension. We do bring programs from uh, and learn lessons from other states to bring to bring to bear for our rural communities today. You're listening to the newest episode of Flyover 2020. It's a show about who we are in tumultuous times, and we are taking note of a lot of the stereotypes about what's happening in rural America and particularly what's happening in the rural Midwest. Rural America is more politically diverse, it's more educated, and it's more economically optimistic than a lot of people believe. We're going to talk about, you can hear us discussing the research on this, more evidence uh, that Americans of color are choosing to put down roots in rural areas. And then we haven't even talked about the political spectrum in rural America. Because again, the stereotype is that it's conservative and it's white. We're pushing back on those stereotypes. And I'm asking you this morning, as we talk with Ben Winchester, a rural sociologist at the U of M Extension, 
I'm asking you whether what we are discussing really jives with what your own experience is in rural in a rural town or city in the Midwest. What's most misunderstood about the community that you live in and the role that you play in that community? And if you're a Midwestern city dweller, this is a chance to kind of step up and said and and maybe challenge some of what we're saying or say this is what I've always believed about it. Give me the evidence that that's not true. 800-242-2828, wherever you are in the upper Midwest, 651, or streaming us anywhere, 651-227-6000, and on Twitter, at Carrie NPR, to Matt in Minneapolis. Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for waiting. Hi there. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I sure. just realized that it was Ben Winchester. It's going to be funny because I'm going to talk about... Uh, the Center for Small Towns in Morris, where Ben used to work, and his wife was my admissions counselor. Okay, good. I, I just think it's interesting, you know, that we're talking about small towns that sort of uh, of the stereotype, if you will. Um, you know, you have a couple different facets of Morris, where you have Superior Industries, which is one of the fastest privately held, or fastest growing privately held companies in the United States. The Center for Small Towns is leading, you know, uh, nation-changing research on small towns and the brain game that's happening. And then uh, what I think is one of the coolest opportunities is the um, English as a Second Language program that Morris runs uh, in conjunction with one of the largest corporate dairies uh, in the Midwest out mm, there. Okay. So it's just uh, interesting that there there's... Uh, things locally happening um, in our own state in conjunction with uh, public institutions that are disrupting that trend. Yeah, that that get overlooked. The Center for Small Town, Ben, this is something that I read about. What's the story with that? Yeah, right. Um, The Center for Small Towns was uh, created about 25 years ago. And um, I was one of the first employees at the time. Roger McCannon had worked with the president of the University of Minnesota at the time to garner some piecemeal funding to put together a program to help uh, serve rural communities that surrounded Morris at the time. And uh, the idea here was to give students some experience in small towns, because many times the students do not get out and off of campus, right? Right. right. So we kind of had an hour radius around Morris that we would, uh, you know, locate students in small towns like Milan or Starbuck or Glenwood, and we would get them involved in small town life. And how how did planning work in small towns? How do you develop new new libraries? How do you uh, accomplish things uh, together? So we really provided. A, a, for me, it was it was just an awesome experience to get students involved and to see small towns for what they are and not rely upon these stereotypes that may have inhibited their perceptions of that place in the first in their first experience I call here from helen in minneapolis hi helen hi thanks so much for taking my call sure i'm a healthcare professional specifically a pharmacist and it's very difficult to be in a small town as a healthcare professional i have a friend who lives in in um um, Brainerd, and they say, and Brainerd isn't that small, but all around them, the healthcare, it's kind of like the, the insurance industry is gutting the healthcare profession. And it's specifically because 
they, they're taking, people don't get paid enough, hospitals don't get paid enough, so they think they can't stay there. And it's really tough for my, my friend to be a pharmacist in Brainerd because it's just hard. You know, it's hard to be um, surrounded by, by almost a, a healthcare desert. We always talk about um, grocery deserts. Well, this is really difficult. If there's no hospital to take care of people, what are the options for people? Do they have to go 90 miles? Or yeah, this is, this is a really, yeah, Helen, this is a really good point. I think I have the essence of what you're saying here. We are seeing trends here, Ben, pretty undeniable that healthcare, larger healthcare organizations are coming in and either buying up and closing or tr- trying to run some partnership with healthcare facilities in rural Minnesota, and that is a real challenge. What does that mean then for the overall vitality of some of these communities? Right, I, I think it's going to be one of the one of the real inhibiting factors for people to look at a place, especially if they can't have a baby within two, two hours. Right, you know, how right. much time do you have to get to the hospital or the birthing centers, especially in northern Minnesota, are miles away. So uh, we have seen, you know, many of the changes we saw in the commercial and retail sectors in, in terms of consolidation of industry is happening in healthcare too, um, where we've uh, moved away from local ownership over many of these enterprises, and now we're subject to kind of the economic, you know, uh, climate and and some of the decisions that get made outside of that place. So now, when people want to actually affect that change, it's much more difficult. We can't make that decision locally. It's hard to reach out to some of these. Um, Organizations, but at the same time, we do have uh, we do have hospitals and clinics that are trying to make things work uh, despite some of these economic challenges that they do have. So I think in many ways, you know, whether it's a small business or or, or healthcare, we're, we're trying to figure out what works in, in terms of the wages that people make, in terms of what we can earn, but also, I mean, healthcare itself is an entire kind of <laughs> area that is uh, that doesn't have much local control anymore. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about as you came in, you noted that the governor of North Dakota has had you in twice to give presentations. I wonder if, you know, that kind of top level policy can, I mean, what he's really looking for, right, are some guides into policy to make sure that the small communities in North Dakota thrive. What kinds of things do you recommend? I mean, what really works? Well, I mean, just first and foremost, I'm not a policy expert, um, but I, I do think that uh, a lot of times that narrative just inhibits potential for action. Like if we think our small towns are dying, why would we invest in them? Uh-huh. Um, so in many in many ways, for me, it is just trying to trying to get over the fact that our small towns are not dying. People want to live there. Um, so whether you're whether you're starting a new business in a small town or whether you're just trying to you know provide internet out there to let people know that there are customers, those customers will continue to be there. But uh, I think one of the more inhibiting factors right now, which actually is an opportunity for the healthcare industry, is the higher proportion of people that are over the age of 65 and 75 years old. You know, roughly a third of rural homeowners right now are over the age of 75. And so, and then we've got another, what, 40% that are baby boomers. So roughly 75% of our folks are going to be well embedded in the healthcare industry. And And they want to stay in their own homes and be independent. That's right. right. And they're going to be forced to move to some of the more regional centers, which, you know, 
we're lucky here in Minnesota. We do have regional centers almost all over our landscape. Not every state has the Wilmer, Pipestone, Worthington, you know, all of these kind of pockets of economic activity. So uh, we do see people have to make that choice as they start to enter that continuum of care that they do end up having to reside in some of those more regional centers. This is Flyover 2020, and it's a conversation today about what we mistake, what we don't know about life in our rural communities and in the rural Midwest. Ben Winchester with us. He's a rural sociologist here. We are tackling the political spectrum of rural America, often missing understood the economic opportunities in rural America and what who these communities look like today. It's not how it looked in the 1970s and 1980s. As we go to news, I want you to listen to Jesus Olmos. He runs three small grocery stores throughout Iowa. He came to Iowa from Mexico after after uh, leaving Mexico. He'd always dreamed of starting his own business, but the hardest part for him was just getting started. I used to work cooking uh, for our Greek, Greek food. Every day I was thinking maybe we can I can probably run a business. We can probably do business. Money, this is the, always the issue, you know, for for many people. But in, in order for you to gain money, you got to spend money. I worked two jobs for a couple of years, and I started saving up my money. And then when I opened the first grocery business is when I have the challenge over here because uh, it takes me like three years. To, to develop and more people they quit like in a year you know but I it takes me three years to grow the business I have clientele you know but a very slow movement you know it's like it doesn't move the way you want it to some days I feel like you know I wanted to quit <laughs> but I say no no this can I can look good you know try to get a loan from the local bank or here in town and you know what I was more more surprised is that I can get a loan for uh, for a car, I can get a loan for a house, but I cannot get a loan for my business that I was already running. That my business that, that I just need a little push, just just a little bit, you know. I wish uh, there was more help, you know, especially for the people who is beginning. I know it's, it's people out there, really brilliant people, good people that they want to do business and they can they can create work for other people. But I don't know if it, uh, and today they will be able to, to begin. Yes, is almost there with kind of a cautionary warning about, hey, I was ready to start a business. I had the skills, couldn't get a loan from the bank. So in some of these small towns, I hope you're listening with that and you're calling in this morning about where you're living in rural parts of the Midwest and what is often misunderstood. 651-227-6000-800-242-2828. And on Twitter at Carrie NPR. Back in just a moment to the latest news now with Emily Bright. Hi, Emily. Back to our conversation now. Ben Winchester in the studio with us, a rural sociologist at the U of M Extension, and this is Flyover 2020. Ben, I want to go right back to the phones here to Allison in Preston, Minnesota. Allison, you are one of these people who moved back, right? Yes, I'm a a boomerang, yes. Tell me the story. How'd you make the decision? 
Sure. Well, after living away for 13 years in the Twin Cities and then in Nashville, Tennessee, where my husband's from, we decided to move back to our my hometown, mm-hmm. Preston. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really the opportunity to take over my family's small business and then um, an opportunity to, for, I think, a better place to raise our children. And um, the biggest surprise to me or the biggest misunderstanding that even I had of, after growing up here was how easily it is to get involved in your community and make change, make quick change, yeah. as opposed to living in a big city where it might feel overwhelming. How can I try to get involved in, you know, city government or the Chamber of Commerce? But in a small town, it's been so refreshing to get involved, especially in a time when our national politics, you feel overwhelmed and you can't help. But um in a small town, you can, and it's really been great. Are, are you doing that? Are you running for the city council or some other public office? Well, I hope to, but I am currently on um, our chamber um, in Excellent. the town of Lanesboro, so that's been Good. really great. Yeah. Um, and again, it's something that I never saw as a teenager growing up here, the workings of, of volunteers and what we get done um, together in a small town. It's been really refreshing. I'm so glad you called and you heard the show and you mentioned the political diversity, too, because, Ben, this surprised me. I I was looking at some numbers from the American Enterprise Institute, especially in the wake of 2016, when there was this media narrative that said it was all those white conservative rural voters that turned out for President Trump, and that's why the election came out as it did. And I think that overwhelmed this idea that there is a lot of political diversity in rural America. Here's some numbers from the American Enterprise Institute. 20% of rural voters identify as liberal, more than I more than I thought. 37 identify as moderate, 42% identify as conservative. So, I think that's more nuanced nuanced than we thought. Now listen to the comparison with city dwellers. In urban areas, 39% identify as liberal, so more liberals in in the cities, but not that much more. 38% uh, identify as moderate. That's almost exactly the same as in rural areas. And 23% identify as conservative. What would you do with those numbers? And why do we have this perception that there is one political stripe if you get out of the cities? Right. Uh, I mean, here in Minnesota, we know this. Colin Peterson on the western side of Minnesota. I mean, we've got got some social liberalism here within uh, this kind of conservative area. Right. Um, you know, Minnesota is just such an anomaly on the national landscape. It's really um, – it was refreshing. I mean, honestly, I, I went to graduate school in Missouri, and I could not wait to get back to Minnesota um, just because there are so many things you've got to love about the state and the fact that we can have such diversity and still have people work together. And I think that's the key point of in a small town, you know, that, that kind of background doesn't matter. When you need to get things done on Main Street, you need to get things done. There's no time to talk politics when we need to build our you know, school. Um, so I really, I really liked what Allison had to say here. I, I think her, her, uh, you know, continuing the business. That's is this is one thing that we look at pretty seriously, and that is business succession. Mm. And we know that sixty percent mm-hmm. of small business owners uh, are over the our baby boomers are older, oh. so they're going to wow. be transitioning. That's a big number, right? Yeah. So we did look at this within extension. We looked at um, you know not only you know and when we talk about business succession, we don't mean like we want to help save these failing businesses. When we talk about business succession, these are businesses that are, that are more than viable. So what we did find at through research 
research here at the University of Minnesota is that not only uh, do business succession uh, stories happen, but not only but within that you increase the number of employees, you increase your sales, you increase your customer base. I mean, there are opportunities to continue and to be a small business owner in rural Minnesota. And but again, the narrative about rural is that you know there's nothing left here. Right. right. Uh, but essentially, we're, we're, we're we work hard every day to tell the story that there are opportunities. So essentially, when people talk about you know I don't know if I could ever live in a small town or a rural place. I say, well, you know, because of their job, because of their expertise. Yeah. I say, you know, basically fill in the blank. You can be a blank in rural Minnesota, you know, an editor, a doctor, a publisher, uh, you, you name it. Uh, and while not every town is going to have that economic diversity. Uh, what we did find through, again, our research is that um, Bridget Tuck does some really great work for University of Minnesota Extension. She's uh, an economic, you know, she's very fluent in kind of the economic practices. And she had found that while when you put rural the rural economy together, it looks it's just as diverse economically as it is in a metro area. But not every small town is going to have a diverse. Not economy. as concentrated, right? But when perhaps. you start putting yeah. five, six, seven counties together in a rural place, you've got regional centers in there. You've got outlying areas. You've got a really great diversity that we should be celebrating. Uh, Mallory says on Twitter, I work at a library in a rural area that's fairly artsy and progressive, but there are also many conservative voters. In 2019, I was told I couldn't make a Pride Month book display because we have conservative members on our board. To the phones to James in St. Paul. Hey, James. Glad you heard the show. Hi. Talk to me about your own experience here. I grew up in a small town in Nebraska, and my family uh, was in Nebraska and Kansas and, and Missouri. And one of the things I think is kind of misunderstood is what what allows small towns to survive or causes them to die isn't so much that half of the high school kids go somewhere else. It's that you have to have reasonable access to some form of banking that's willing to take risks and invest in the community. Yeah, You have to have some education. You have to have some medicine. And it has to be within a reasonable distance. And outside of Minnesota, what I can see is the idea of having regional schools and regional medicine, regional centers has been a pretty poor solution um, for most states. And Minnesota is a real exception to that. So that's something to keep I'm in mind. I'm curious whether Ben Ben has seen that. So in terms of the regionalization. Yeah, he's saying Minnesota has cracked this code in some ways that maybe some of the other rural states haven't. Well, I'll just say that um, we are flush with social capital in this state. We have a very vibrant rural development industry, is what I like to call it. Mm-hmm. And these are folks like me, uh, you know, extension folks, but they're also, we've got very hardworking folks at the initiative foundations across the state, the regional development commissions, plus we have some really good um, philanthropic entities. We've got Bush, Blannon, McKnight, uh, Northwest Area Foundation, Northwest Minnesota Foundation. We've got a lot of good resources. We, in fact, we just had a meeting yesterday in St. Cloud, and we call our group um, Friends in the Field. And our point was, uh, the it's one thing to tell our communities they need to work better together, but it's another thing for us to work better together. So when we are doing our work in and for small towns, we communicate with one another. We want to know where Blandon, you know, held their broadband trainings. We want to know where the Initiative Foundation held some com- uh, uh, competitive communities uh, program. So when we're able to communicate better together, we've got this really great infrastructure to help serve our small towns and rural places. Let me grab a call here from Jeffrey in St. Cloud. Hi, Jeffrey. Hi. Uh, it's really great to hear you again, Ben. It's been several years. Um, I, you, and you just touched on what I wanted to know about is 
uh, what your thoughts and more importantly, the data says about uh, nonprofit organizations and governmental organizations that are focused on economic development. Um, one particular uh, really resonates with some of the comments from uh, other listeners is the Latino Economic Development uh, Corporation out of St. Paul. And I know I've seen them out in rural areas and because their vans are marked. And um, I was just wondering if you could speak to uh, how those organizations can help uh, gaining uh, gains in diversity in those sure. rural areas. Yeah, and w- whether they're successful. Ben? Right. Yeah. So this um, goes right up to the social diversity that we've got in our rural communities, too, that, you know, the number of nonprofits in this country goes up by, you know, five to 15 percent every five years. Mm. I mean, so uh, the idea here is that, you know, I mean, I kind of do challenge the Putnam's idea of social capital is in decline. I just think uh, how people get engaged and involved with one another looks different than it used to. Um, And while we have this idea that people don't want to be involved. They're not going to the Eagles. They're not going to the Lions Clubs. They are involved, but in different ways. They're involved in their interests. They're involved in regional, you know, bicycling groups or running groups or um, these avenues here too. But when we, especially with new immigrants, I think our established uh, historical social organizations struggle to uh, mm-hmm. to welcome in new people, mm-hmm. whether those new people look like them or not. They struggle to involve people that look like them too. Um, so in many ways, we see a rise of the these new social institutions across the not just the rural landscape but the landscape as a whole where we've got new social organizations that reflect the interests and the passions that people have today and it may not look like the same interests and the passions that people had before so we have really shifted away from kind of place-based development groups to interest-based development groups Interesting. So we may have had the Hancock Community Betterment Club is now replaced by the West Central Minnesota Snowmobile Association you know Ben I, I just just to conclude here it strikes me that, and I thought about this when Allison called about getting involved in city government, that small town mayors or medium-sized community mayors can be really essential to the welcome mat, to encouraging, you know, business collaboration, maybe to encouraging the local bank to be more receptive to loaning to people like some of the, the business owners that we heard from here, Juan and Jesus. Do you find that you know, that that kind of level, that mayoral level can be pretty integral to the way this community faces the public. No, you're right, right on. I, I mean, these are the primary narrative drivers. So, I mean, the mayors are right. Okay. Uh, mayors, uh, chamber officers, you know, these folks are the are the ones that, you know, they lead the charge in terms of trying to create a positive narrative in our communities. But in many ways, I let folks know because some people will say like, well, of course, you're positive. You're the mayor. Well, I like to give people ammo, my, right? My last name is Winchester. So I'm going to give people ammo <laughs> for having a positive conversation and for good reason. Like you, you're not Pollyannish. You actually have a positive attitude for good reason. Yeah. You feel like the, the leverage the story right. and you really have to get it out there. Right. Mm, right. Which is sometimes a challenge too. Ben, this was great to have you on Flyover. Thank you. Thank Karen. you much. My pleasure. Ben Winchester is a rural sociologist at the University of Minnesota Extension, and he's a guest on Flyover 2020. By the way, if you've missed our two flyovers, you're getting in on the end of this show. You can find them on the podcast. You can listen to them together or space them out as you have time to listen. But these, this is 
really our answer here at Minnesota Public Radio to the misunderstanding that the coasts have about what's going on here in the Midwest. You just heard a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. You can learn more about our show by searching for NPR News with Carrie Miller.